Now will you turn with me this morning to the New Testament scripture reading in the second letter of Timothy, in the New Testament, second Timothy, as we read from verse 10 of chapter 3 to verse 5 of chapter 4, Paul's charge to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 5. You, however, know all about my teaching and my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know uh, those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. May God bless to our understanding this further passage of his most holy word. In our own day, it is, I think, beyond any matter of question or doubt that there has been a great decay of and departure from the historic Christian faith in the professing Church of God. I remember reading a number of years ago in a leading Philadelphia journal known as The Inquirer a survey of American churches and the conclusion of that article was stark as it was true, that organized religion is in a severe state of decline in America, the editorial wrote. And there are signs all around us today of departures in doctrine and decline in the numbers of the church and a terrible fall of moral standards which is affecting even the Christian church as we know very well today. And even in our churches, as the late Dr. Nelson Bell, a regular contributor to Christianity Today magazine, wrote just a few years ago, the current attempts within the church to lower standards of morality and doctrine can only be described as satanic. 
Now, with these trends in our days and such like them, it is well for us to look back on a Reformation Sunday morning and see how God has intervened in circumstances and conditions that were remarkably like the ones that we face today in society and in the church. It is, I believe, most appropriate for us to re-emphasize the biblical and reformed faith to which I trust all who are members of this church are thoroughly committed and are embracing with all their strength. And we would that our visitors who are amongst us this morning would also be of that very firm and scriptural persuasion as well. It is fitting for us to face honestly and humbly the needs and failures today that we have as a professing Christian church. What a timely theme, then, under the umbrella of the series of these morning services on life in the Spirit to come to the subject of the biblical faith, the Reformed faith, and to think with you about our needs and our failures as we consider it. How ready, for example, are we to give a reason for the hope that is within us? How earnestly do we strive, as the apostles and the reformers did, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? How clearly committed are we to the doctrines of grace that are at the very heart of the biblical message to us in our generation? So I want you to look with me this morning at the biblical faith, the Reformed faith, to look with me at our needs and identify them, and to look toward the close of this exposition at our failures, what they are, and how we can remedy them. And so, first of all, look with me this morning at the biblical faith, the Reformed faith. You remember how we read in our Old Testament passage from the book of the prophet Hosea, chapter 4, and particularly verse 6, which I highlighted for you in the reading. But the prophet's complaint, indeed the Lord's complaint, against his people Israel was this. My people, said the Lord, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now why have I chosen that text this morning to speak to you about the biblical faith and to raise the question of your commitment to it. Well, because this passage surely emphasizes for God's people that they need to grasp and to hold and to teach the whole counsel of God. And failure to do this, beloved, according to the prophet, means the destruction of the church, the dispersing of the flock. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And as the teaching shepherd in this pulpit this morning, it is my profound and biblical duty to remind you that that responsibility of bringing the knowledge of God to God's people, that duty to feed the flock and to defend the flock from its enemies, is supremely the office of the pastor. Now, similarly, you will have noticed in the New Testament passage in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, 
the same note is struck, though in a slightly different way, where Paul said to young Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come, says Paul, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. So you see that both testaments alike lay before us the importance of believing on your part and receiving on your part and teaching on my part the whole counsel of Almighty God. That God may be glorified among his people, but the church might be nourished and supplied, but the world might be won by the witness of a revived and renewed church of God, and that God's grace and power in the preaching of the gospel might go forth from our midst as never before, that it might not be said of us, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now the question then arises, what is that knowledge to which the Lord referred through his prophet? What is the word that is to be proclaimed according to Paul's instruction to young Timothy? Wherein is that sound doctrine that we so greatly need? And I answer that it is without any question and beyond all matter of controversy found in the biblical faith of the scriptures, the faith that we in the Presbyterian tradition know as the Reformed faith, rediscovered so gloriously in the dark days of the 16th century by men such as Martin Luther and John Calvin, John Knox and a galaxy of others, who, as I said in my prayer, are enshrined forever under the grace of God in the church's halls of fame, a truth rediscovered in the great outflowing of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Now what was it, precisely, we must ask, that so changed that world three and a half centuries, four centuries ago? What was it that brought a change about so remarkable but in the words of the great church historian Philip Schaff, the reformation of the 16th century, he said, is next to the introduction of Christianity the greatest event in the history of this world. And as he goes on to say, as in the first century we hear the creative voice of the Almighty in the ministry of the apostles, calling light out of darkness, so in the 16th century we hear again the creative voice of the Almighty bringing forth his truth to shine with pristine light again in the surrounding darkness. What is the essence of this biblical faith that was rediscovered then to which our Reformation forefathers were so profoundly and thoroughly committed. And I have to say to you this morning, it is nothing if it is not the pure theism, the pure doctrine of God that will let God be God. 
Now let me put it to you this way. So much of the professing church, it seems to me, has only a finite God, a limited God. You only need to be around Christians of other persuasions to discover from their very language that this is so. As they speak of allowing God to do such and such a thing in their life, as they speak of the free will of the sinner in some way, contributing to his salvation and being a necessary ingredient in it. And as you listen to them, you quickly pick up the the picture that is in their own mind of a finite and very limited God who is almost at the beck and call of men and women today. But you see, the God of the Scriptures, beloved, is not like that. The God of the Reformation is not like that. He is a great, all-sufficient being, the ruler and the creator of the endless eons of space, of the whole universe. And in this day and age when, for so many, and even some Christians, it seems the be-all and end-all of this world is found in the doctrine of scientific evolutionary creation. The Bible assures us that of him and through him and to him are all things. And it would seem that we are living, moreover, in a day when for many Christians there is a defeated God whose doings are dependent on the will of men. But again, the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Reformers was not like that. He never fails to accomplish his purposes. That which he sets out to do, he does infallibly, so that he even uses the actions of evil men in this world to work out his glorious and holy will in such a way that he is in no sense a partaker of those evil deeds. He governs all his creatures, and all their actions, as the Shorter Catechism so resoundingly affirms for us. And this God is revealed in the pages of the Old and New Testaments as one God, a mighty, infinite Spirit existing in three persons, the Father who is God, the Son who is God, the blessed Holy Spirit who is God, yet not as three gods, nor as three aspects of the one God, but as one holy, unique, almighty, and ever-living, infinite Spirit. And the Bible, moreover, tells us that we can never find out the Almighty to perfection. No human mind can fathom the mystery of God. But it is revealed to us in our most holy Christian faith. And as the late Dr. J.G. Machen once said, the Christian heart melts within him in gratitude and joy when he thinks of the divine love and condescension that has thus lifted the veil and allowed us sinful creatures to look into the very depths of the being of God.
And so I say to you again, the very essence of the biblical faith, of the Reformed faith, is not the doctrine of predestination, mighty and important as it is, not the doctrine of justification by faith alone, not even the five points of Calvinism, that marvelous framework on which all the rest of the Christian doctrines in a sense center and are built up, but the essence of the biblical faith is the vision of God Almighty and of his majesty. And oh, how greatly we need to rediscover that, beloved, in these days. If we did so, it would transform our worship that so often is man-centered. And we're interested in gimmicks and things that we can bring in to bring more people into the church when our focus should be a right on the glory and the majesty of the supreme God. It would affect our evangelism and the way we approach it. It would affect the way we live our Christian lives. No longer experience-centered, but God-centered. Lives that continually ask the question, what would you have me to do? And it seems to me in these days, Oh, with what sadness I say this. Alas and alack that our great reformed denominations across the world are bartering away the one distinctive thing that they have to offer to the Christian church and the world today. The vision of God Almighty and of the majesty of his glory. But you don't find the scriptures doing that. When Moses saw the majesty of God, he took the shoes off his feet. There in the desert, in the presence of the burning bush, the bush that burned with the glory of God yet was not consumed. And he hid his face, lest he should look upon God. And you find Isaiah did not abandon that heritage when he stood in the presence of the God of glory in the temple of Jerusalem, and saw him, his Lord, high and lifted up, so that his train filled the temple, smitten with a deep sense and consciousness of sin. He was driven to find cleansing, and driven to that place of consecration, bowing before the sovereign God and saying, Here am I, send me. You do not find in the ministry of Jesus a veiling over of the glory of God. As he prayed in Matthew 11, I thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that all things have been delivered to me of my Father, and no one knows the Son but the Father, and the one to whom the Father will reveal him. The sovereignty and glory of God in the salvation of man. You cannot come to me says Jesus, unless that glorious, almighty, sovereign Lord opens your mind and heart and draws you to me to reveal my glory in your soul. You do not find the veiling of God's glory in the preaching of the apostles, and we've seen this in our studies of the book of the Acts on Sunday mornings, nor in the great epistles of the apostle Paul the vision of God and his majesty is supreme because, beloved, it is at the foundation of all 
biblical religion and biblical thinking. It is theism come in to its own rights. Acknowledging God to be God and letting him be God. For this is pure religion and undefiled that lays man at the feet of almighty God and gives him all the glory. And it's glorious in its call to consecration. You know, when you see this vision of God, you don't waltz down the aisle of the church or get up and wave your hands in the air. You say, as you do with Jonathan Edwards, nearly three centuries ago, I have this day been before God, he said. And I have given myself all that I have and am clean away. That's what we need in the church today. The biblical faith, the reformed faith, come once more into its own. Now will you look with me secondly at our needs and more briefly on this. Again, I refer you to verse 6 of Hosea chapter 4. You notice the grounds of the Lord's controversy with his people in the stirring indictment that he gives them. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you, the priest, he says, have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you, and you shall be no priest to me. Now, what is it precisely to reject knowledge? Well, it is, as I said to you, to fail to present the whole counsel of God in the simplicity and sweep and integrity with which the scriptures do that. And coming down to very practical things, to have a lazy ministry from the pulpit is to reject knowledge. A ministry that does not care to go in to the deep things of God as well as the familiar things, but is always and ever skating along on the surface. To be forever laying the first foundations in the church is equivalent to rejecting knowledge. Because we are told in Hebrews chapter 6, but leaving those first principles of the doctrine of Christ, we are to go on to the things that lead to maturity. We are meant, beloved, to build. We are meant, beloved, to grow in our most holy faith. And a ministry that is given to snippety preaching is in no sense glorifying to God. A ministry that is given to hobby horse preaching, where I ride my favorite theme, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, the second coming of Christ, it might be or the doctrine of the millennium, as in many churches, whatever it might be, is failing to give to us the knowledge of God. Saccharine preaching is ruled out by this verse, for it's all sugary sweet, and everyone leaves the service feeling that they've really been buttered up. Threatening preaching is ruled out by this text. It is all, you see, a ministry that has rejected knowledge. And because you have rejected knowledge, says the Lord, I will reject you. Now what is the remedy, beloved, in these days in which we live, which are so desperate for the whole counsel of God? 
when we see the church languishing so badly and spiritually so weak and morally beginning to feel the corruption of the age around us and socially in trouble. Beyond all question, our need is a return to the doctrines of grace. Just as Hosea said in chapter 6 at the end, thou hast forgotten the law of God. In our terms and in our day, beloved, it involves us in embracing afresh the five principal hallmarks of the historic reformation of our biblical faith, sola scriptura, the first great trumpet note of the Reformation, Scripture alone, not the traditions of the church that had become voluminous, that were appealed to to interpret the Scriptures, and instead of interpreting them, it simply led God's people into error. Not the additions made in the darkness of the medieval age under the Roman Catholic Church, not the opinions of men that had been accrued together, but sola scriptura and sola gratia, by grace alone, versus the doctrine of human merit and of human works that had come in like a flood and a landslide into the Christian church of the 16th century of long pedigree, where men really thought that their works alone would make them right with God. And some people could be so holy, the saints, that they had works left over that others might use, the works so-called of supererogation, that we can lay claim to, to become right with God. Sola gratia, said our reformers, by grace alone you are saved, not of works. It is the gift of God. Sola fide, by faith alone. Again, versus the doctrine of works, the penances, the endless confessions to the priest, the importance of coming to God only through the church, all laid aside and laid low by the doctrine of sola fide. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Not the Pope, not the church, not the ecclesiastical dignitaries, then or now but Christ the only mediator between God and men. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. The beginning and the end of every confession of truly biblical faith. Now what I'm saying to you, listen, is this. That if God's people are being destroyed for lack of knowledge today, for failure to present the whole counsel of God, The remedy is coming back to the beginning, the fundamentals of our most holy faith, the profound conviction that the Christian religion is one of pure grace, that begins in grace, that ends in grace, and the conviction, moreover, that the Reformed faith is the finest expression of the teaching of Scripture that has ever been devised in this world. It set man before God as absolutely dependent in all matters that salvation is all of God and that to the scriptures are to be ascribed the power wherein lies the very essence of our salvation as they point us 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. In every step of this salvation, the glory is God's, not ours. Glory be to him forever. Amen. Now thirdly, as I close, there is not only the biblical faith, whose essence is the vision of the majesty of God, and our needs, the essence of which is to recover that biblical faith again. But there are our failures. And I want to give you merely three out of what could be a very long list. Do we not want desperately a renewal of Reformation history, doctrine, worship, and application today? Yet how few of us really take it to heart? Where can we find fervent intercessors before the throne of grace, wrestling with God for the church's welfare. Where do we hear prayer today with tears in that prayer? Where are the pillars of God's church that are standing firm and straight in the midst of a wayward and dark generation? You know, to recover these things, we need, I think, to remember that first of all our failure is that we are poor lovers of the truth. Did you read with me that passage in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5? Paul loved the truth. He exhorted Timothy to love the truth. In season and out of season, preach the word, for the day is coming, he said, when men will no longer endure sound teaching. How few of us would respond to the question asked of one of the leading reformers in the 16th century, what three things does the church of God need most? And he answered, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. How few of us have experienced Martin Luther's simple yet profound exclamation, doctrine is heaven. What a beautiful statement. How few, for example, have read through John Calvin's Institutes, which next to Scripture itself have probably been the most influential tool in building the Reformed Church of God in this and any preceding age of the world. Beloved, we are such poor lovers of the truth. But the second thing is we are such poor livers of the truth as well. In Proverbs 23, verse 23, we have that striking text, Buy the truth and sell it not at any price. And we are faced with a dangerous indifference, I'm afraid, in our hearts, sometimes with gross backsliding concerning the things of God, sometimes a Laodicean contentment has come in like a flood bringing with it riches and prosperity, but spiritual coldness. You are lukewarm, said Jesus, and I will spew you out of my mouth. All of these things multiply the unreformedness of our lives. How unreformed often we are in practice, dear friends, whatever we profess with our lips. For instance, how often our name is placed in what we do, before the name of God, 
That's an index to see how reformed we are and how biblical when the message of Scripture, as we have seen, is the essence of the vision of the majesty of God. How far are we from the style of Martin Luther, who in all his letters for a long period of time, even those letters written to the Roman Catholic Church dignitaries with whom he was at issue, his letters bore in large capitals at the top of each one of them, Jesus! For did he not owe to him everything? And this was not mere penwork, nor was it pious talk but the very expression of a devoted heart to the glory of God in the grace of Christ. And thirdly, beloved, as I finish, we are such poor petitioners for reformed truth, aren't we, today? As I read the account of the Reformation, as I study biblical accounts of revival in the Scriptures, one truth impresses me above all other truths, that these men whom God used were not only lovers of God's truth and livers of God's truth, but they were prayers concerning God's truth. They were petitioners that God would revive his work in the midst of the years, and in the midst of the years make his power to be known again. You think of Martin Luther, three hours daily on his knees, without exception. Meditation, temptation, and prayer, he said, make a minister of the gospel. And to his friend, Philip Melanthon, in one occasion, he wrote, I must rise from bed two hours earlier than usual tomorrow, for the more I do, the more I must pray. And Philip Melanchthon, hearing him at prayer privately in his room one day, said, Great God, what faith, what spirit, what reverence, yea, what holy familiarity with God, this man truly has. And today, beloved, the church's greatest weakness is lack of fervent, private, and public prayer. We miserably fail to use heaven's greatest weapon. Our prayer life, is it not often more like a toy that Satan sleeps beside rather than the mighty missile that should be fired into his kingdom, crushing and demolishing satanic powers. And the question it poses to me, beloved, is this. How can we daily live to God outside of the closet of prayer when we do not meet him inside the closet? And why do these reformers dwarf us? They make pygmies of us because they were men of greater education and erudition, devoted and faithful to God? No! They were prayerful men of prayer, possessed by the spirit of grace and supplication. They were Daniels in the temple of God. Oh, my friend, bow your knee this very hour. Bow your knee and ask the God of grace to make you a better lover of the truth, a better liver for the truth, but above all, ask God to make you a better petitioner for the truth, that he may revive his work in you and in his church and in the world 
that every sphere of our lives might know its fruitfulness. Refuse by grace to relinquish the inner prayer chamber, for here true reformation will be established or broken. And so I finish. And my conclusion is this. You remember what the Old Testament prophets said. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And what Paul said in the New Testament, the day will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Before it is too late then, let us ask for wrestling grace to pray for reformation. Almighty God of reformation power, save us from ourselves, first of all, and grant true renewal of reformation history, doctrine, and application. Make us petitioners for truth, lovers of it, livers for it. Make us live in and out of the five great distinguishing principles of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Sole Deo Gloria. Conquer us, O Lord, with sovereign reforming grace. Grant us the wrestling grace of your Spirit. Revive your work in wrath. Remember mercy. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning we feel unworthy as recipients of that great trust given to us in the Scriptures and in the history of our Church. Make us indeed, as we have besought Thee, even in the preaching of the Word, better men and women who love and live for and petition for that truth of God as it is in Jesus our Lord that wrought such mighty miracles of grace in ages by and still is able to do so in our own. Father, hear us in this prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen.